We read scripture this morning from 1 Samuel chapter 2. Samuel chapter 2. We will read the entire chapter. Our text is taken from the last half of the chapter, verses 27 through 36. We won't reread that section, but we pay careful attention to that as we read 1 Samuel chapter 2. We hear the inspired word of God. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart rejoiceth in the Lord. Mine horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth is enlarged over mine enemies, because I rejoice in thy salvation. There is none holy as the Lord, for there is none beside thee, neither is there any rock like our God. Talk no more so exceedingly proudly. Let not arrogance come out of your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty men are broken, and they that stumbled are girded with strength. They that were full have hired out themselves for bread. They that were hungry ceased, so that the barren hath borne seven, and she that hath many children is waxed feeble. The Lord killeth and maketh alive. He bringeth down to the grave and bringeth up. The Lord maketh poor and maketh rich. He bringeth low and lifteth up. He raiseth up the poor out of the dust and lifteth up the beggar from the dunghill to set them among princes to make them inherit the throne of glory. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and he has set the world upon them. He will keep the feet of his saints and the wicked shall be silent in darkness for by strength shall no man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces out of heaven shall be the thunder upon them. The Lord shall judge the ends of the earth, and he shall give strength unto his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. And Elkanah went to Ramah to his house, and the child did minister unto the Lord before Eli the priest. Now the sons of Eli were sons of Belial. They knew not the Lord. And the priest's custom with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant came while the flesh was in seething with a flesh hook of three teeth in his hand. And he struck it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. All that the flesh hook brought up, the priest took for himself. So they did in Shiloh unto all the Israelites that came thither. Also, before they burnt the fat, the priest's servant came and said to the man that sacrificed, Give flesh to roast for the priest. For he will not have sodden flesh of thee, but raw. And if any man said unto him, Let them not fail to burn the fat presently, and then take as much as thy soul desireth, then he would answer him, Nay, but thou shalt give it me now. And if not, I will take it by force. Wherefore the sin of the young men was very great before the Lord. For men abhorred the offering of the Lord. But Samuel ministered before the Lord, being a child, girded with a linen ephod. Moreover, his mother made him a little coat and brought it to him from year to year when she came up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. And Eli blessed Elkanah and his wife and said, The Lord give thee seed of this woman for the loan which is lent to the Lord. And they went unto their own home. And the Lord visited Hannah, so that she conceived and bare three sons and two daughters. And the child Samuel grew before the Lord. Now Eli was very old and heard all that his sons did unto all Israel, and how they lay with the women that assembled at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. And he said unto them, Why do ye such things? For I hear of your evil dealings by all this people. Nay, my sons, for it is no good report that I hear. Ye make the Lord's people to transgress. If one man sin against another, the judge shall judge him. But if a man sin against the Lord, who shall entreat for him? Notwithstanding, they hearken not unto the voice of their father, because the Lord would slay them. And the child Samuel grew on and was in favor both with the Lord and also with men. And here follow the words of our text. 
And there came a man of God unto Eli and said unto him, Thus saith the Lord, Did I plainly appear unto the house of thy father when they were in Egypt in Pharaoh's house? And did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to offer upon mine altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me? And did I give unto the house of thy father all the offerings made by fire of the children of Israel? Wherefore kick ye at my sacrifice and at mine offering, which I have commanded in my habitation, and honorest thy sons above me, to make yourselves fat with the chiefest of all the offerings of Israel my people? Wherefore the Lord God of Israel saith, I said indeed that thy house and the house of thy father should walk before me forever. But now the Lord saith, Be it far from me. For them that honor me, I will honor, and them that despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days come that I will cut off thine arm and the arm of thy father's house, that there shall not be an old man in thine house. And thou shalt see an enemy in my habitation in all the wealth which God shall give Israel, and there shall not be an old man in thine house forever." And the man of thine whom I shall not cut off from mine altar shall be to consume thine eyes and to grieve thine heart. And all the increase of thine house shall die in the flower of their age. And this shall be a sign unto thee that shall come upon thy two sons, on Hophni and Phinehas. In one day they shall die, both of them. And I will raise me up a faithful priest that shall do according to all that which is in mine heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house and he shall walk before mine anointed forever. And it shall come to pass that every one that is left in thine house shall come and crouch to him for a piece of silver and a morsel of bread, and shall say, Put me, I pray thee, into one of the priest's offices, that I may eat a piece of bread. We read that far. May God bless his word to our hearts. Beloved and lords, in verse 29, we read that Eli honored his sons above God. That verse always causes me as a father to shudder. Eli honored his sons above God. While we don't question the salvation of Eli, we take note here of his failure as a father. God would cut off Eli's house as a result of his failure as a father. God judges those who depart from the way of obedience. And there's consequences, as we read in the law this morning. I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me. In the face of that terrible and dark reality, God here testifies of his covenant faithfulness to his church. God would take from Eli the privilege and the honor of having His covenant continue in its generations. But God would preserve his people regardless. And note the contrast in our text. Samuel and the sons of Eli. A sharp contrast throughout. But ultimately, verse 35 is pointing not to Samuel, to the wonder by which God would raise up Jesus Christ as the one through whom our children would be prophet, priest, and king. As parents, we stand before the word of God. We have vowed to raise our children in the fear and honor of Jehovah. We have vowed to do so in accordance with the teaching of Scripture as that which is taught here in this Christian church. Included in that vow is the necessity of Christian discipline. The great need of our day is parents who are sensitive to sin and who discipline their children in love in order to direct and to teach them to hate sin and to flee that sin. So easy it is today to become calloused to sin. And as parents, not so sensitive ourselves to sin. As we engage in the entertainment of the world, as we take in the movies, we take in all of the various aspects of this worldly life, and pretty soon we're not so sensitive anymore to cursing, swearing, not so sensitive with regard to the keeping of the Lord's Day, not so sensitive with regard to a lack of respect for authority. 
And what ends up happening then is that lack of sensitivity in our lives is passed on to another generation and then another generation who increasingly doesn't know sin, doesn't know the horror of sin, doesn't grow up to be taught to hate sin. Such is the warning that this passage sets before us. We need to know our sin. We need to hate that sin. We need to impress the hatred of that sin upon our children, upon our young people, so that they are taught to confess their sins, taught to know the wonder of the cross and the celebration of the grace of God that's evident through that cross. God takes seriously our vow as parents. And should we fail to train up our children according to the word of God, we then hear the indictment that God directs to Eli. You have honored your sons, your children, above God. He didn't want to offend his sons. Oh, he told them that they ought not do what they're doing, but he didn't go beyond that. And what's the result? He offended the living God. Now again, we don't judge the eternal destiny of Eli. Eli was a godly man. The scriptures paint him as such. We have no reason to question the fact that he was forgiven, that God gave him entrance into glory. But he suffered the consequences of his parental neglect in the sense that his house is cut off now from the priesthood. And as parents, we look at this passage and hear that warning directed to us. Eli's house cut off. Noting, first of all, the judgment. Secondly, the reason. And finally, the promise that God directs us to. A history lesson is necessary here with regard to Aaron the house of Aaron, and where Eli fit into Aaron's house. Eli was of the princely house of Aaron. Verses 27 and 28 make reference to that, even though Aaron's name is not explicitly stated. Aaron is the one who is being spoken of there when God in Egypt came to Aaron and testified to Aaron that he would make of Aaron's house the high priest's office. Now, Aaron had four sons, Nadab, Abihu, Eliezer, and Ithmar. Even you children know what happened to the first two of them. What happened to Nadab and Abihu? They were killed by God because they had offered up strange fire on God's altar. And so Numbers 3, verse 4 and Leviticus 10 record that incident where in the wilderness of Sinai, Nadab and Abihu came, they took issue with Moses and with Aaron, and they tried to usurp them from their position. They were cut off. God saw to it that the whole family of Nadab and Abihu perished. The result then is that there's only two sons of Aaron that are left, Eliezer and Ithmar. And for years after the death of Aaron, the high priestly office continued in the line of Eliezer so that Eliezer was the one, and his sons were the ones that continued it. But for some reason, which not set forth in Scripture, at some point it was transferred to the house of Ithmar, so that now, instead of the high priest being from the family of Aaron through Eliezer, it was transferred to the family of Aaron through Ithmar. Eli now is a descendant of Ithmar. 1 Chronicles 24, verse 4, describes the families of Eliezer and Ithmar. Eliezer had 16 sons. Ithmar had 8. So from the beginning, the family of Eliezer was far larger than that of Ithmar. The line of Eliezer would continue all the way through Zadok, the faithful priest during the time of David, unbroken all the way to the time of Jesus Christ. Now we realize Jesus was not of that line. Jesus, remember, is born of the tribe of Judah, not Levi. And he's born as the one who is a priest, not after the order of Aaron, but after the order of Melchizedek. But nevertheless, we're able to trace the genealogy of Aaron through Eliezer all the way to the time of Jesus. The line of Ithmar is cut off so that of Aaron's Four sons, Nadab, Abihu, Eliezer, and Ithmar. Nadab, Abihu, and Ithmar all have their 
generations come to an end. So that during the time of Jesus, there is no continuation from the line of Ithmar. Eliezer is the only one of Aaron's son through whom that continued line goes. The passage here before us explains why Ithmar's line was cut off. I will cut off thine arm and the arm of thy father's house. Verse 31. So that God's anger now is directed toward Eli, his household, his descendants, but even more broadly, the whole of his father's household, all of Ithmar's seed. And there's scriptural ground for understanding that point. And again, a bit of a history lesson in that regard to demonstrate the fact that God here is speaking not just of the limited family of Eli. He's speaking of the whole house, which extends to Eli's father and goes all the way back to Ithmar. Again, the house of Ithmar was considerably smaller than that of Eliezer. Only eight sons versus 16 sons. The curse of God was operative throughout the history of Ithmar's descendants. And we find that in a number of different passages. First of all, Eli's cousins, so those who were of Ithmar, were busy primarily among the tabernacle in Shiloh. And later on, they were transferred to Nob. So that these men were laboring as priests in Shiloh and in Nob. Both groups were disobedient to God, and they were involved in God's judgment. That comes out in verse 13, when it says that the priest's custom with the people was. And you go on to read that, and you say, this isn't the way Leviticus taught it. But this had become the custom of the priest with the people. A very different way of offering sacrifices than that which God had clearly laid out in his word in the book of Leviticus. They were involved now in customs that they had taken up and they would continue now in disobedience and rebellion against God. And Bible history records Eli's house and the house of Ithmar being completely cut off. Chapter 4 records that Eli's two sons are killed in battle. So that's 1 Samuel 4, which is the sign that here the man of God gives to Eli. After Eli's death, the Philistines come to Shiloh and they murder all the priests that are present in Shiloh. Those priests would have been the descendants of Ithmar who were serving under Eli, who was the high priest. Interestingly, Psalm 78, when it's depicting the history of the people of God, makes reference to this event in verse 60. So that he forsook, this is God now, forsook the tabernacle of Shiloh the tent which he placed among men. Their priests fell by the sword, and their widows made no lamentation. Ahiatub, the brother of Ichabod, the son of Phinehas, is recorded of in 1 Samuel 14, verse 3, serving there in Shiloh. That was one slaughter that took place. But then another slaughter, again, which you children remember. Remember when Saul in his frenzy and hatred against David responded to the priest giving David the showbread. That was Ahimelech, Eli's great-grandson in Nob. David had come. He was running away from Saul. And Ahimelech gave David the showbread. Saul was furious. He hears about it. And he sends his servant then, Doeg, the Edomite, to go there. And Doeg comes and he kills 85 priests in Nob. He killed everything that walked. Only one priest escaped, and that was Abiathar, who he went with David at first, but then later on, when David was old and David was experiencing trouble in his family, this Abiathar and his son Abimelech supported Adonijah, who was competing against David to be king. And the result is Solomon then thrust out Abiathar out of his house. Now, interestingly, at that point, when Solomon thrust out Abiathar, this is what we read in 1 Kings 2, verse 24. So Solomon thrust out Abiathar from being priest unto the Lord, that he might fulfill the word of the Lord, which he spake concerning the house of Eli in Shiloh. 
That's when then this word that God spoke to Eli was fully realized. From that point on, there was no one left of Eli's house. And after those men died, that would bring an end then to the house of Ithmar. So that the curse of God was not merely upon Eli, upon his father's house, the house of Ithmar, but it was upon all those who were guilty of offering up sacrifices in the context of this corruption. Those who were allowed to live would be a disgrace. There would still be a few that would still be living. And they would be a constant source of grief. They would no longer have a place anymore among the priesthood. And they're, they're spoken of there in that last verse. Verse 33, The men of thine whom I shall not cut off from mine altar shall be to consume thine eyes and to grieve thy heart. Verse 33, and then later on talking about what are they going to do? They're going to be begging for bread. They're going to be trying to buy the office of priest back so that they can have food because they're hungry and they want a way in which again to restore their evil practices in order to fleece the people of God so that they can have what God has not ordained for them here. They would want to be priests just so they could eat. Their hearts would be motivated by selfishness, not by the service of God, not by bringing sacrifices in accordance with God's will. Eli then would be the last of the faithful priesthood of the house of Ithmar. There would be no organized priesthood again after Eli out of the house of Ithmar after the slaying of the priests at Nob. Eli's house was effectively cut off from the priesthood so that the only line that continued was Aaron through Eliezer. Now, beloved, what a severe consequence of sin. And this is God's judgment. God clearly establishes in this passage his judgment upon Eli and his house. Now, we ask ourselves the reason. Why? Why such a severe response? Verse 29. Wherefore kick ye at my sacrifice and at mine offering? The sons of Eli had little regard for the law of God. And the first perversion was that they did not handle the sacrifices and the meat of the sacrifice properly. Leviticus 7, verses 29 and following was very explicit about how that meat was supposed to be handled. The fat was supposed to be burned, while the breast and the right shoulder would be given back to the priest after the sacrifice was roasted on the altar. The priest of Eli, however, had no respect for that law. Instead of taking just that right shoulder and that breast, Hophni and Phinehas looked on the sacrifices as theirs. They didn't view the sacrifices as gods belonging to God, that which was to be offered to the Lord. They viewed it as something for their own personal use and pleasure. And so what would they do? They would boldly reach into the sacrifice with their three-pronged fork and they would take as much as they could. The tender meat that would come off is that which they would desire. And so they would thrust that fork into the meat, according to verse 14, and take everything they wanted. Not just the shoulder, not just that which God had ordained, but whatever would come. A blatant disregard for God's commandment regarding the, judge, the work of the priesthood. But then what happened? As time became, as time went on, they became more bold. And pretty soon that boldness is displayed here in our text, in verse 15. So bold they were that they would flat out take the meat before it was sacrificed. Give flesh to roast for the priest, for he will not have sodden flesh of thee, but raw. So that the servants would be sent to cut off choice pieces of meat, often the animals that were to be roasted, so that they could have that meat fresh. And that's what they were doing is they were starting a butcher shop in the temple. So that they could now cut these prime pieces of meat off the sacrifice first so that they could now use them for their own benefit and sell them to others at a profit. And now the animal then that was going to be put on the altar was not whole. It was not complete. Again, you children, remember, what was the rule about the sacrifices? They had to be complete. They had to be whole. Now they were mutilated. 
And remember what the wholeness, completeness was a picture of? Jesus. And the fact that Jesus was without sin. And that he offered himself without spot, without any kind of trouble or difficulty. The whole spirit of worship was being destroyed by these wicked men. They were not interested in God. They weren't interested in God's glory. They weren't interested in helping people present their sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins. And it was all about their pleasure, their advancement, and how they could promote themselves in that office of the priesthood. Understandably, believers were tormented by this. Pretty soon, you wouldn't want to bring your lamb because you knew how that lamb was going to be treated. You knew this was not right. And so trouble now is evident among the tabernacle in that people now who are sensitive to sin, who know the rules of God, are now kept back. And in that regard then, the offense rises up to Jehovah God. But then even taking it another step, these men began seducing women who were coming. And now they began committing immoral acts with some of the women who were coming regularly to assist with the service in the tabernacle. That's verse 22. Eli heard all that his sons did at Israel and how they lay with the women that assembled at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. The tabernacle of God was beginning to resemble a heathen pagan temple. And the sons of Eli were the ones who were engaged in that activity within this tab- temple, this tabernacle. We have a picture here, beloved, of the gross failure of leadership. When those who are placed into public ministry or those who serve in positions of office within the church fail to uphold God and His Word with regard to their calling, the effect is devastating upon the whole congregation. And what ends up happening now is their moral failures be transferred on to the congregation. How easy for the leaders, especially the religious leaders now, to use their position of honor, of power, for personal gain. And what a temptation can be, which we need to strenuously resist. And then, using that position to accomplish one's own pleasure, one's own gain. And the result then, that by moral failures, bringing down then the morality of the congregation. Because now they're not preaching, they're not disciplining, they're not teaching against sin. They're allowing that sin in their own lives and they're tolerating it. And pretty soon it becomes tolerated in the church of Jesus Christ. Now in contrast to that evil, we have the beautiful testimony of God regarding Samuel. In verse 11, And the child did minister unto the Lord before Eli the priest. He ministered to the Lord before Eli the priest. God was establishing his covenant and his faithfulness in Israel. And despite the wickedness of these leaders, God would see to it that he would raise up one faithful in order to maintain the right worship of God. Now, one would have expected, perhaps, that Hophni and Phinehas would have been more secretive with regard to their actions and conduct, trying to keep their father ignorant of such things. But, again, we know how sin develops. At first, perhaps, you're trying to hide it. But then pretty soon, you become more bold. And pretty soon, it's well-known. And that's always the case where sin is allowed to develop. The sins became so blatant that they could not be hid even from their aged, possibly even naive and blind father. Eli learned what was going on. And we read Eli was very old, which is an explanation here, but not an excuse for his neglect of discipline. He realized how serious this sin was. And we don't doubt this sin of his his sons hurt him more than anything else in his life. He knew what God had required. He was a true child of God. He wasn't indifferent to such wickedness, especially when it came 
from his own sons. And so Eli admonishes them. And we have that laid out here in verses 23 to 25. Why do you such things? For I hear of your evil dealings by all this people. Name my sons, for it is no good report that I hear. Ye make the Lord's people to transgress. If one man sin against another, the judge will judge him. But if a man sin against the Lord, who shall entreat for him? What was their response? Notwithstanding, they hearkened not unto the voice of their father, because the Lord would slay them. Now God directs his words of rebuke now to Eli. Eli stands before God at fault. What Eli said to his sons was true. The sins they committed were of the most serious of sorts. They were sinning against God. Eli made clear the horror of that sin and the serious nature. But then what did Eli do? He dismissed them back to their duties again. That was the trouble. Not that Eli did not address the sin. Not that Eli did not admonish them. But Eli ought not have allowed them to continue in that place within the tabernacle. As the high priest, it was his responsibility to guard the sacrifices. And even children would be involved. He had to put them out in order to find others who more faithfully would carry out that role. Failure to discipline is a sure way to ruin or destroy the souls of children. And we know the warnings that are found throughout the book of Proverbs. Proverbs 13, 34 and others emphasizing the fact that if we spare the rod, we spoil emphasizing that if we fail to make use of the rod in our discipline of our children and reproof, there are going to be consequences for us as parents. That was Eli's sin, his failure to discipline his sons. And this was a typical failure of Israel through the period of the judges and then later again after the time period of the captivity. Eli did not stand alone here with regard to this sin. Eli knew the difference between good and bad. He taught his sons, but then he wasn't willing to go the next step. He didn't punish them. Now you say, but the passage really doesn't teach that. Now it may be that he did exercise consequences. It may be that there were punishments that were evident. But again, you know what was necessary. These men had to be put out of the tabernacle. At the very least, Eli knew they deserved not to be in the tabernacle. They had to be put out. But even more than that, what did the law require? Because of their fornication and because of their work in undermining the sacrifices, these men deserved to die. They ought to be stoned. That was the law. Those who offer strange fire before the Lord, those who engage in open adultery and fornication, are to die. That Eli was not willing to enforce. The name of God was being blasphemed within the congregation, and Eli knew it. But he didn't bring an end to it. He satisfied himself with the mild corrections that he brought, regardless of the fact that he knew the sacrifice of God was here being violated, and the sanctuary of God was being defiled. He gave occasion then for the remnant to despair all the more. Eli did not enforce the things that he talked about. He didn't bring his children to see what it was to tremble before the holiness and the justice of the living God. He could talk with weeping and with a grieving heart, but his talk was not effective. They showed no signs of repentance. We read they didn't listen to the voice of their father. They would not heed him. Verse 25. The fifth commandment requires that as children, as young people, we honor and we submit to our parents. We have to be willing to hear their godly counsel. And when we refuse, we show ourselves to be fools. That's the book of Proverbs again. Full of warnings. If you will not listen to instruction, you will not heed correction, then you're a fool and you deserve to perish in your sin. Repeatedly, They return to the same sins. And the Old Testament laws were not being maintained. They were not being enforced. 
Verse 30 is striking. They that despise me shall be lightly esteemed. That is, God will not allow, he will not tolerate such activity in worship. There was a trouble that plagued Israel the whole time period of the judges. And as we look at that in catechism, you students are seeing that trouble. There were always some who were God-fearing from the heart, who loved God. They maintained God's way. They respected His law. They even taught the principles to their children. But in one serious matter, again and again they failed. They did not properly discipline their children. When their friends and their neighbors violated God's law, broke commandments, they didn't demand punishment. When their children demanded that they would marry outside of the covenant, which they knew was wrong, they allowed it. And the result is that wickedness just continued to grow and to develop. So that the worst of sins were being committed without any discipline being administered. There was no excommunication taking place. Nehemiah had to reap the rewards of this. And later on, Nehemiah, years later, expressed his judgment of the sin of taking heathen wives. That especially was a plague that the children would take wives who were not godly. And finally, Nehemiah, according to Nehemiah 13.25, took matters in his own hands. And we read this. And I contended with them and cursed them and smote certain of them and plucked off their hair and made them swear by God, saying, Ye shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor take their daughters unto your sons or for yourselves. Eli was an example of that failure. And God made Eli's house to be an example to all generations, including to you and to me. They that despise God's covenant, as Hophni and Phinehas, will be cut off. Those who allow their children to despise God's covenant in their generations will be cut off. There would not be an old man in the house of Eli any longer. And so, beloved, we stand before God's word and we ask ourselves this humbling question. Am I honoring my children above God. God places that responsibility on your and my shoulders. Am I too busy with my work that I don't know what my children are doing? Am I involved in the lives of my children? What kind of friends are they hanging out? What kind of music are they listening to? What kind of entertainment are they pursuing? How are they dressing? What are they doing on their phones? What are they doing on computers? Am I honoring my children above God? There are so many ways, beloved, that we become guilty of this sin before God. Perhaps we look the other way when we know they're walking in sin. Perhaps they're not honoring us as they ought. They're despising authority. And we allow their big mouth to go forward without any consequences. We know that they're engaged in drinking underage. We know that they're having parties where alcohol is present. We just look the other way. We don't want to have to deal with it. We know that they're walking in a manner that perhaps is not in accordance with God's will. Rather than the godly Job who is praying, who is constantly concerned, who is engaging with those children... Like Eli, we admonish him maybe, but then we look the other way. Are we more concerned about our children's reactions to us than their walk with God? More tolerant of their sins than God is? Beloved, this pricks us. So easy it is for us to be too lazy to engage in the discipline that we know needs to take place among our toddlers. And so we let those toddlers go. We let their attitude reign. And we even joke about it on social media, how sassy they are. What happens as they grow up? Will we put our foot down when they refuse to attend spiritual activities? Will we allow them to raise their finger against worship and against the calling of God that they gather in worship to Jehovah God. Beloved, if we don't discipline them, God will. 
And the discipline of God is going to involve far greater consequences. And that's what this passage is teaching us. So that from early on, we need to teach and impress upon our children the importance of faithfulness to God. The horror of sin. Teaching them to hate sin. We hear the words of Proverbs twenty three thirteen: Withhold not correction from the child. For if thou beatest him with the rod, he shall not die. The rod of God's wrath must be applied to our children in love. And our motivation is God. It's the glory of God. It's because we love God and we hate sin. And now we desire to see our children walk also in the way of obedience and godliness. The rod of God's wrath was applied to Jesus Christ in response to God's curse. And Jesus took upon himself that torment of hell itself. He did it for you and for me so that we as parents are forgiven our failures. Our children are forgiven their sins. We will never perish under the wrath of God. That wrath has been poured out on our Savior. The rod of God will not destroy us. It's a rod of love. It's a rod that corrects. It's a rod that leads us in the way everlasting. And in love, we now apply that rod of correction to our children, assuring them this is not the rod of wrath. This is not the rod of hatred. This is the rod of chastisement, the rod of love. And in love then, we apply that rod to the backside of our children along with the reproof that's necessary. Wisely, that discipline must be administered by parents. Consistently, it must be administered by parents. And that discipline is performed in faith. By the faith that the God who instructs us and the God who has worked that sensitivity in our hearts is the God also who will use it to drive foolishness out of the hearts of our children, to save them from hell. This is an expression of the love of God as it's administered now through those whom God has appoints as their parents. We pray for wisdom. We pray for wisdom to be loving in that rod and reproof. We pray for the grace by which we might be consistent. Never may we respond in anger. No slapping, no hitting. The rod is administered in wisdom to behavior that needs to be corrected in God's sight. And that rod results in closeness. It results in repentance. It results in sorrow for sin. It brings resolution between us and the child as well as the child and God. Proverbs 29, verse 15, demands that reproof accompany that rod. Along with the corrective rod, there's that instruction. Instructing regarding sin, regarding the consequences of sin, regarding the holiness of God and His glory. As a child is reminded of the love that the parent has for him and admonished not to continue in that sin, turn from it. Reproof steers that child away from the path of hell to the path of righteousness. Eli gave reproof, but he spared the rod, and he suffered the torment of his failure. Now we notice this is all in God's sovereignty, and important that is for us to note. Verse 25 points that out. Because the Lord would slay him, them. The fundamental reason for this curse coming on Eli and his household is that God had not chosen to be those who would continue his covenant did not cause his sons to be destroyed. God brought it out in his sovereign good pleasure. God ordained from all eternity the sons of Eli would be sons of Belial, godless men, and their lives would show that godlessness. And nothing Eli could have done could have changed their eternal destiny. We know the pain. We know the sorrow as parents of that reality. As we stand a helpless feeling that we can't change their hearts. Nothing that we do ultimately is able to correct them and to turn them back to the way of obedience. We leave that in our sovereign, loving, heavenly Father's hands. At the same time, we realize that doesn't change the responsibility that falls upon us or that fell upon Eli. We acknowledge God's sovereignty. We submit to God's divine rule. We pray for our children, acknowledging God alone is the one who's able to turn their hearts. We seek not to wallow in self-pity when they walk continued in 
that lack of repentance. We pray for the grace that God will give unto us too to rest in Him and to know His sovereign good pleasure toward us. We cry out for forgiveness for our failures and we leave the matter in the hand of our faithful Heavenly Father. God calls us as parents to faithfulness. God forgives us. God works in us the grace by which out of love for God, we desire to maintain that covenant calling. And God uses the faithful instruction of godly parents to continue His covenant in their generations. This is a marvelous wonder of God's goodness and mercy. We can't take any credit. We can't look at ourselves and say we're deserving or worthy. God mercifully punished Jesus Christ for Eli's sake. And God mercifully punished Jesus Christ for your and my sins of esteeming our children above God. Eli escaped the punishment, but he still had to deal with the chastening hand of God and the consequences. And so it is in our lives as well. Our discipline is not going to cause our children to turn out good. We're dependent on God working his grace in their hearts. And we discipline then in accordance with that prayer. A parent can become proud and think, look it, I've done it all. Look how faithful I've been. As he boasts in his accomplishments, quickly God can turn that boasting into sorrow. And God can show, I'm the one in control of all things, not you. But beloved, am I and are you seeking to be faithful and firm in the instruction and training of our children for the glory of God? This History teaches us you cannot expect God's blessings in your generations if you're not teaching and instructing them in all the various aspects of their life. If you're knowingly allowing them to continue in sin, you cannot expect God's blessings in your generation. You need to admonish. You need to correct. You need to discipline. And as children, young people, you need to hear the admonition of your parents. You need to heed their good instruction. And you need You need to turn from your sins and look to Christ for forgiveness. God is faithful. God sits on the throne, ruling all things. And he shows that here in this passage in the beautiful promise that is given. I will raise me up a faithful priest. Verse 35. Now we realize there's two different ways historically to understand that, but ultimately the passage is pointing to Christ. Historically, 1 Samuel God would raise up Samuel as the priest of God who would be faithful out of the house of Ephraim. God would work in young Samuel and would train him to walk and to live according to the love of God. And Samuel saw all the sins of Eli's sins, yet he would not walk in their footsteps. That's amazing. And that's a marvelous expression here of God's goodness and God's love in the lives of our children. Our children are being raised in a godless society. They're surrounded with the grossest of sins, as was Samuel, here in the context of the tabernacle. Yet God used, by the power of His grace, those who were in His life, His godly mother, His father, Eli, as the tools in His hand to preserve Him in a seemingly impossible situation. God alone, beloved, is able to preserve us and our children, and we look to Him. And we realize that he alone is the reason for the contrast between Samuel and the sons of Eli. God was at work. And of his work of grace. Verse 26 conveys the highest commendation. And the, Samuel, and the child Samuel grew on and was in favor both with the Lord and also with men. We find almost the same language applied to Jesus in Luke 2 verse 52. God raised up prophets, priests, and kings out of those who were faithful in Israel. God continues to raise up prophets, priests, and kings among our children by a wonder of his grace. Secondly, the historical fulfillment would be in Zadok. Zadok would be a faithful man who would be given the office of high priest during the reign of David. Verse 34 points historically to that wonder. But finally, we know that the ultimate promise here is to Christ, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He shall walk before mine anointed forever. God is the one 
who will raise up one who will walk forever as his anointed. And God builds that pre Christ, God establishes among our children, those who will maintain that prophet, priest, and king role to all eternity. Even Samuel, as faithful as he was, could not maintain the priesthood in Israel. And that became evident. Sadly, his sons also failed to walk in godliness. And we find the same sin of Eli transferred to Samuel. Extremely sad, but again, reminding us, never ever become proud. Oh, so quickly the devil can get hold of us and drive us down sins that we're aware of, that we see, and yet we fall into. But the weakness of the human priesthood pointed to our Savior, Jesus Christ. He did all that was in the mind of God. He faithfully maintained the of God in holiness and in righteousness. Perfectly. And he gave himself as that sacrifice that was necessary to satisfy the wrath of God. And through his perfect obedience, he earned for Eli, for you and for me, a place in God's covenant and God's kingdom. He gives to us the forgiveness of our sins, the joy of God's covenant goodness and mercy. And we live with him in the wonder of that joy to all eternity. Notice, built a sure house. Our houses are not sure. He builds a sure house, and that's the church, which will not fail, will will be preserved to all eternity for the glory and honor of God. May God grant us faithfulness as covenant parents, that we not esteem our children above him. Amen. Our Father who art in heaven, forgive us our failures. We are sinful. Our example is not what it ought to do. Give unto us, Lord, the grace to know the wonder of thy work of grace in giving us a Savior in Jesus Christ our Lord. And we pray for the strength by which we might do battle against the powers of sin and darkness and that we might know the victory that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Work repentance and true sorrow for sin, we pray, and grant us that glorious and wondrous assurance. Amen.